Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So have you ever gone for a ride around London in words? If not, stay tuned. Well, not tuned exactly. You know, just don't, don't turn the thing off. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Hornum and Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, it was like culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Monday, November the 21st, 2011. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. Subscribe free on iTunes, find us on Facebook, or tweet the show at Londonist Sound. And we're sponsored this week by Open Pen, which is, of course, London's first open literature magazine. Always a good read. And as ever, it can be picked up for free at a bunch of readerly locations about town, not least the Book Box in Hackney, the Kennington Bookstore, the Departure Centre in Limehouse, and many, many more. We're in Paddington Station for this week's show at the Mad Bishop and Bear Pub. Do we know, uh, by the way, where the pub gets the crazy name from? Absolutely no idea. I didn't even know the pub was here until opened until today. It was the only pub I knew that opened at 8am, so I thought that would be a suitable choice. That says plenty, but nothing about the name. <laughs> which you'll have to find out. If you do know the answer to that one, please drop us a tweet. Um, my guests this week are both regular contributors to Londonist. Contributing editor Beth Parnell-Hopkinson, or Beth P.H. as she writes, uh, specialises mostly in news and transport and politics. And Rory Anderson's video tour of the East End continues apace. Tell us about the uh, video tour, first of all, Rory. Well, it's a video and song uh, series on the Olympic boroughs. I'm doing a song uh, and video every fortnight from each of the five London boroughs. We're finishing... Tower Hamlets and about to move into another one in a fortnight. So give us an example of typical fare. Well, um, it's an extension from the series I ran last year where I wrote a song a week about the East End, all of which was in Tower Hamlets. And so this uh, new series, which is hosted entirely at Londonist.com, sees an extension of that into the other boroughs. Same sort of thing, characters, unusual events. Uh, today we're at Paddington, which was designed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, and he, of course, is linked to the East End through his uh, building of the Great Eastern Ship. Uh, and a great little story there which uh, listeners can find out about in two weeks' time when I release it on the weekend. And, of course, that has uh, quite a connection with our theme music. You, of course, provide our theme music um, at the end of the show every week. Um, and what's the, what's the connection between uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel and, and Great Babe? Great Babe was the, the name he had for this project, which was to be his sort of cherry on the cake. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't quite end up the way he had hoped. In fact, he never ever got to see the boat set sail and there's a little twist in the tale too uh, but Great Babe is a song that um, is influenced by that story 
Okay, so uh, do look out on Londonist uh, for those things, and we'll give some details of where you can uh, find out more about that later on as well. Beth Parnell Hopkinson, um, transport seems to be dominating this week's news on Londonist. We've got uh, cycling, trains, no trains, uh, transport projects that don't exist. Uh, Where would you like to start? Well, um, okay, should we start with the ones that don't exist? Yes, that's always a good uh, bet with transport. Okay, so uh, I'm actually looking at uh, the Unbuilt London article, um, and it's uh, the King's Cross Aerodrome and Charing Cross Heliport was kind of interesting, particularly in light of the um, sort of constant uh, re-emergence and um, ditching of the Boris Island project. Um, the King's Cross Aerodrome and uh, Westminster Airport scheme um, originally intended to have a platform, or uh, I'm quoting here, um, a platform of runways erected on stilts above the Thames at Westminster Bridge, um, which sounds fantastic, but probably quite dangerous. I can't quite visualise that, to be honest. Yeah, I must admit I'm struggling too as well. Um, the only thing I can think is that um, they didn't imagine uh, London being quite as built up as it is now. Right, yes, this is, by the way, a fantastic article, uh, quite a lengthy one, uh, compiled by Dean of projects that sort of never happened or or sort of nearly happened, were mooted. Uh, Rory, what do you like of this uh, selection? Well, my eye was drawn, of course, to uh, this project that was planned for the 1860s. Of course, that ties in with my era that I'm interested in in London. Uh, A plan to connect um, Waterloo, sorry, Westminster Bridge and London Bridge via railway, straight down the middle of the Thames. Uh, James Samuel and John Heppel had this idea. Uh, it never took off, but 150 years later, in 2012, they're planning uh, Blackfriars Bridge, which will um, a station there which will, t- which will uh, straddle the Thames. So they may be ahead of their time. It's very interesting, isn't it? It's a little reminiscent of the old London Bridge, isn't it? Having uh, stuff going on on a bridge across the river. Yeah, absolutely. Have we heard any more, incidentally? It's, it's not quite transport-related. It's more sort of pedestrian. Um, these uh, walkways out in the Thames on the north bank of the two. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, right? I do. Um, apparently, because I, as far as I understand it, there's been a delay to the project, but I don't know exactly what has caused the delay or how long they expect the delay to last for. So, Is it possible that somebody went, oh, this is ridiculous? I'd say that's entirely possible, yes. <laughs> because this was, uh, we, we talked about this, what, six months ago, it must be, um, essentially a floating walkway with giant eggs at either end that the public, you, you can walk out into the river, about uh, what 20 foot or something like that, into a giant egg Rory's looking at me like really? <laughs> uh, you turn you turn right out of the giant egg and walk along a walkway that's on the river, parallel with the bank another giant egg and back onto shore. And the reason that we're not doing this? Sounds fantastic I think, no? You'd be up for this? Yeah, it's like Euro Disney on the Thames it's great <laughs> Oh, that's, I'm totally surprised that you went for that. I, I thought you would go, no, <laughs> why would you want to go out there? Um, okay, uh, transport, we've got uh, transport projects that didn't happen. Uh, what's not happening on Boxing Day? Um, the RMT appear to be uh, perhaps the most aggressively striking union, shall we say. Um, and uh, But on this occasion it's ASLEF who are um, balloting members over strike action. Um, they're looking at getting quadruple pay for that bank holiday. Um, is Aslef, is that the train drivers, or have I imagined that? That's train drivers, I believe, mm. yes. And they want quadruple pay? Yes. Do you know anybody that you've ever met who gets quadruple pay? Um, I have worked Boxing Day in the past and got paid double time, and that was as much as I got. Oh, and I did get free pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I only really know musicians and artists, and they don't get paid at all, so quadruple zero is kind of the same thing have you ever dipped a toe into the sort of commercial world or the uh, the paid salaried world uh well when i was planning to move back here from australia i moved over to perth when i was um, 13 i had to work in a warehouse for three months so i could buy musical equipment so i have sweated at some time in my life i think you sweat more as a as, as a self-employed person don't you yeah I certainly do there's no walking away from it what, what about you you're you're um uh, Beth, besides uh, writing for the Londonist, you also do uh, some other stuff in the city, I think. Yes, um, I work in uh, the financial industry. Um, I'm a data analyst. It's a very boring job. <laughs> Is it really? Um, well, I suppose it depends how interested you are in financial data. I'm, actually, I'm quite interested in it, but trying to explain it to other people um, it usually ends up with them taking on a sort of glazed expression, so I try not to usually. 
Have you got like a, an elevator pitch for the role? Because I find that I've had to develop a, an elevator pitch for what I do because I've got one of these stupid portfolio careers. So when I meet somebody who's not in the arts, I've got to go, boom, there you go. So how do you, how do you pitch data analysis? Um, I usually say it's the um, news and pricing information that people use to trade um, on stock markets. Uh, and that kind of sort of brings it into the real world a bit for people. And then they make the connection with banking and they go, you're in banking! <laughs> Do people really react badly? Occasionally they have, yes. I think there's a bit of a lack of understanding um, about the financial industry as a whole. Um, and yeah, occasionally people think that, you know, I must be sort of raking it in and get these huge bonuses. But I can assure you that's uh, very far from the truth. <laughs> well, that brings us back by the sounds of it to the Asda's drive. I mean, this, this is unreasonable in the extreme, isn't it, to be going on straight. And it, Boxing Day as well, so uh, this is a day when public transport is already extremely limited and uh, presumably you want to go and see your friends and family. This is one of those rare times in the year when you've got a bit of time off and they're going to be knocking out the opportunity to do that. though, isn't it? You know, quite often on Boxing Day you're recovering and you made plans to go and visit a relative that you're not entirely overjoyed to see. It's a good little reason to say, ah, oh, maybe, maybe we'll put it off for a week or two, you know? Do you think that the same thing goes for the uh, train drivers, that they're also planning on having quite a hangover that day? It would be rude of me to comment on such a thing. <laughs> Blimey, you're the transport writer. <laughs> There's also some issues to do with the Piccadilly line as well. I didn't know this, but I gather that the Piccadilly line is going to be out of play at some point over the Christmas period. Do we know about this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, there's several lines uh, this month, in fact, which are going to be out of service. Um, I think it's for various, for various weekend engineering works. And then there's not really anything very much in the run-up to Christmas, but then between Christmas and New Year, there's quite a lot of shutdowns. How reasonable is it? I notice that all the engineering works go on on the weekends, and it seems quite obvious that that to prevent disruption to the business world. Given all the stuff we've got going on at Occupy and the, the cries of corporatism and so forth, is it reasonable that it's people's leisure time and family time that gets messed up reliably and never the, the business side of things? I don't think there's any reasonable time, um, but as I think as we all probably know, they're, you know, they're quite limited as to the time that they can actually do the work. So... Well, now, is that true? I mean, if it was overnight stuff, yeah, okay, fair enough, if it's a long... But why not make it on a Wednesday just for once? You know, why does it always have to be uh, the poor people trying to get around on a Saturday and Sunday? Less, uh, I, suppose it's, I suppose it's seen as less of um, a direct cost to business of staff not being able to get into work and more of people perhaps not being able to get to the shops or go and visit their relatives um, and therefore not a direct impact on the economy. Costs the individual, though, doesn't it? I assume that business is more important than the individual in this situation. Yeah, there we go. That's what I thought. Uh, I thought was at the bottom of all of that. You're, you're based down in the uh, west, southwest part of town, aren't you? I'm out in Surrey. I've moved out uh, to Surrey, uh, which makes my project harder to travel into the East End and beyond every weekend or so. But I had the um, great joy the other day to discover that I live around the corner from where J.G. Ballard used to live, a great uh, writer, uh, and. Um, he ha- he's, his house is still there it's, it's sort of run down and there's no blue plaque because I only just found out you've got to be dead for 20 years before you can have a, a blue plaque put on but um, there was however in Surbiton just a few miles up the road from where I am in Shepparton a dead stripper unveiled for the last time in uh, Surbiton but it wasn't uh, as risque as it sounds for those of you who know Surbiton you know that the most saucy thing that could happen there is an older pensioner catches her knickers in the back of her dress or something it's quite a very uh, middle of the road town now, now let me put you on pause there because Matt Brown the editor of uh, London managing editor of London made a comment not dissimilar to that one and you should have seen the comment section from uh, Serbitonians go oh, how dare you suggest that we're anything other than you know like the, 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 the <laughs> sorry edge. I should rephrase the red light district that is Serbiton has unveiled a blue plaque <laughs> to a dead stripper uh, there was some debate over though what to call her because, of course, some people had objected to the word stripper being used on a plaque. Some thought act- the word actress was too bland. Impresario is the name used to describe her on Wikipedia. <laughs> was, sorry, the, the, the um, stripper though. Sorry, the stripper, I shouldn't say that. What, the performer, we should call her, Phyllis Dixie, uh, was the first uh, to ever put on a show of that nature on the, in London's West End in 1942. So it's quite a big deal, and Surbiton should be proud to call her one of their own. Didn't, they say, didn't the Serbatonians say that they preferred the term burlesque performer rather than stripper, I believe? Yeah, but I think there's some discrepancy as to whether burlesque is the right yeah. uh, term for the act that she presented. But 42, that seems remarkably late for uh, that to be the first time that a stripping show was going on. on the West, in the West End. Ah, right, OK. Yeah. That's the <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was going on for many, many years before that. Let's have another transport one. 
We've been on two wheels a lot this week. After the um, tragic deaths of two cyclists on the uh, Bow roundabout um, in the last few weeks, um, I believe TfL are now being sort of called to account um, over the design of the Cycle Superhighway in that particular area. Well, the Cycle Superhighway was has been put in place. It's basically these sort of long blue lanes throughout various bits of London, uh, which is supposed to uh, encourage people to cycle more. Um, that's the bottom line. Um, there have been some issues with them. I think um, they've been criticised for being poorly designed, for you know, for putting cyclists in danger as opposed to encouraging them to cycle. And I've heard that there are places where the blue line crosses over the it's where the cars are going to go. It crosses the path there, or sometimes the blue lane stops and reappears horizontally across the road. I don't know how you're supposed to perform a move like that. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, as I say, there's been some criticism over the design of it, and I think in the case of the Bow Roundabout, it um, crosses sort of entrance and exit lanes for the roundabout, and it's quite a busy roundabout. Um, and I, I think, um, I don't know the exact circumstances of the accidents, but I'm, you know, I'm guessing that the cyclists on the highway uh, were not seen by the drivers in these situations. There's kind of two stories. One written by my Londonist colleague James Yu um, who does quite a lot of stories around cycling, very keen cyclist himself Um, he did, I think it's the Tour de Danger which is a bike tour around London, I think it was the 10 most dangerous junctions in London basically to try and raise awareness about how dangerous cycling in the city can actually be Um, you know, and to highlight the poor road design on some of these junctions. What do you see as being the answer to this? Is it simply a redesign or is it, uh, I know one or two people have been suggesting different legislation banning heavy goods vehicles being one of them which seems uh, a little out there. Um, I think like as with a lot of these type of problems I don't think there's one simple answer I mean I know um, a lot of people have suggested a 20 mile an hour speed limit banning heavy goods vehicles as you say Um, there's a combination of things I think it's um, driver training needs to improve and probably a bit controversially I think you know cyclists also need to improve their awareness of what's going on around them obeying road signals so on and so forth Um, whoa whoa whoa, this is heresy (laughs) cyclists obeying road signals yeah I think I'm I'm probably going to get a lot of comments for that one um, we were speaking to uh, Andreas a couple of weeks ago from a cycling organisation in London and I brought up the idea that it's probably not OK for cyclists to routinely go through red lights, for example. I can understand certain circumstances where perhaps it's a you know a life-saving thing to do that or to, to pull away a few seconds before the rest of the traffic. But you often see quiet streets, set of traffic lights, through they go. That's not OK, is it? I think that the problem is is that people are making um, very subjective judgments on whether or not it's safe for them to obey or not obey a road signal, um, and I think perhaps that's not what they should be doing because you know the road signal is there for a reason, and you know perhaps they shouldn't be getting into the habit of of choosing whether or not to obey it based on what they think the circumstances are at the time. I like the idea of laws generally just being sort of serving suggestions, you know. We'd advise against murdering people, but, you know, if you see a a real need for it... Uh, Yeah, I think the the whole... For me, just on the cycling, the whole idea of cycling in London terrifies me, you know. With my little series where I have to dot around from here, there, everywhere, I've considered cycling, but I'll tell you what, even in the summer when the weather's okay, it's just, to me, it seems mad. And the evidence, unfortunately, that uh, it is a dangerous pursuit piles up in the form of uh, ghost bikes which appear around town. You know, the uh, white painted bikes that uh, you'll sometimes see with floral tributes. What do you think the impact is of those? Do, do we think there is an impact of those in terms of you know, reminding people to, to be safe? Well, I'm sure as a driver, much like the little crosses you see at the side of the road and black spots, it can serve as a reminder that cyclists are out there to double-check your mirrors and all that. I know it would for me. I suppose it's just a, a small thing that people are doing to try and raise awareness of the drivers, you know? Yeah, I mean, the ghost bikes um, were actually criticised by the CTC, which is um, the UK's main national cycling organisation, um, as being a deterrent to people cycling. Um, personally, I don't think that that's the case. Um, and a lot of the comments that were made on this story and generally about um, the CTC's comments uh, were along the lines that there were other things that deterred people um, and in fact the ghost bikes were raising awareness and I I tend to agree with that because I think if you see it it's going to be one of those things for cyclists it will remind them that 
you know they are mortal um, and that accidents can happen um, for drivers it will make them hopefully more aware of cyclists on the road what are the main problems with how cyclists behave in terms of you being able to keep them safe when you're driving I mean, I think it's the usual ones, really. It's not not looking. I think people wearing headphones when they cycle, which I see a lot of. And to be perfectly honest, I think if I was as vulnerable a road user as a cyclist, I would make sure that I had all my senses available to me. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, like many things in life, people become used to the dangers that they do every day. And as they you know, become more experienced cycling on the roads, they, their, their safety boundaries get less and less. Even, even just no lights, you know, simple things that you learn as a 12-year-old when you're doing a cycling proficiency. You know, I see it all the time, people no lights on, or as you say, headphones. I think it's a suicide, you know. I think pedestrians are a little bit like that as well, aren't they, when they're wandering along, again, with, usually with headphones on and at least three mobile phones. There's a, there was something I was listening to about how birds flock, and it's this sense that none of them actually plan where they're going particularly but the, the bird will sort of take slight cues from the bird either side of it and that's how they all end up going in the same direction and, and sort of uh, not hit running into each other you look at uh, the, the traffic junctions in the west end that's exactly how pedestrians are working as well nobody's really switched on there's just if somebody steps out then they'll step out terribly dangerous um ground to air missiles for olympics seems a natural uh, place to go after all that <laughs> Look, I mean, I can't quite believe this. You, uh, I was down at the Olympic site a couple of weeks ago, as uh, regular listeners will know, and we, we were talking a little bit about the SAS tip. I'm just going to glance over my shoulder here. I don't quite trust anything anymore. We mentioned SAS uh, teams under the Olympics a couple of weeks ago, and uh, immediately a policeman was on the scene. Three stories going on here connected with the Olympics. We've got a 15% black cab fare rise proposed for the Olympics, as well as black cabs... Uh, not being allowed in the Olympic lanes, as well as AA vehicles and so forth, not being allowed in the Olympic lanes. Ditto cyclists. We've then got ground-to-air missiles mooted by Philip Hammond, the Defence Secretary, as uh, a way of defending the Olympics against goodness knows what. And finally, the Olympics' security has been brought into question. USA is bringing a 1,000 agents, some of them packing. Rory. Um, well, to be honest with you, I was more shocked by uh, the release of the Olympic single this week. Um, I don't know. As a songwriter, as someone whose interests lay in the uh, Olympic theme, I was shocked to find that the two mascots, Wenlock and Mandeville, have released a single. I don't know if you guys have seen the mascots. I, I was unaware of them this week, but they've been described in, in some quarters as a drunken, the result of a drunken one-night stand between a Teletubby and a Dalek. They are cyclopses, aren't they? Yeah, they're quite scary, actually. I mean, remembering that the target audience is 5 to 15-year-olds, but a single was released this week called On a Rainbow, which is written by Tom Fletcher from McFly. Um, and the reason I was shocked was because the target audience being so young, and, of course, the Olympics is all about uh, drink-safe, drug-aware type, you know, positive messages. And yet the, the hook in the chorus of this song um, says, how, who knows how far you can go when you travel on a rainbow? Uh, I think conclusive evidence is that it's scratching around for cigarette ends in the local park, smelling of white lightning, you know what I mean? But this is something that's, you know, being force-fed, it seems, to, to, to a very young age. But the thing that really uh, kind of it angered me a little bit is that um, the taxpayers paid for the Olympics, yeah, uh, and yet if you want one of these uh, mascots, you know, Wenlock or Mandeville, to appear at your sports day or your school event, which you can do, it costs you £850 for uh, an appearance. Um, if you want them to stay overnight... Don't ask why you'd want an overnight stay, but... Uh, Were you looking at the right advert? Yeah, sorry, we're still, still talking about the stripper, aren't we? No, 70, uh, £1,720 for an overnight stay, but here's where it gets really strange. If you want them to journey to Scotland or Ireland, 2450 quid. Now, I don't know if that's danger money or, or what it is, but they're charging more to visit you know, these extensions of uh, the UK than for the UK. Uh, sorry, for, for, for London itself or, or, for, or for England. Um... So I don't know if that's the basis for why the, the, the Scottish football team has pulled out of... Uh, allow, sorry, the, the FA have pulled out from allowing Scottish players to play for the Team GB. Like, if you won't let our mascots come up to see us, then we'll keep our footballers from playing for you. But they probably didn't think that through because it kind of backfired on them. But it's, it's just a strange series of events. This is the thing that really starts to peeve me. It's this idea, of course, as I say, the Olympics is for everyone. We're told it's for everyone, and yet there's obviously concerns at £850 per appearance that some poorer schools wouldn't be able to afford to have uh, these two uh, show up to their, you know, their event. And uh, Olympic spokesperson, Baroness D. Juicy, which is a fantastic name, um, 
her, her response to this accusation that yeah, the poorer school is going to miss out was that they're too busy dealing with students to do the paperwork required to get these mascots out to them. So in other words, it was just like, yeah, it was a complete cut-off to the poorer schools that they wouldn't be able to sort of enjoy this uh, event anyway. So I thought that was quite striking, really. Right, so if you're poor or Scottish, yeah. no Olympics for you. Beth, would you want uh, Wenlock and Mandeville to stay the night? Absolutely not. I think, I think I'd end up having nightmares. I can't quite understand the circumstances under which you, you would want the mascots no. for the Olympics staying the night anywhere. Maybe you could pitch a tent in the back garden for them. Being as they're rather unattractive and we're not keen on the single, maybe we should just pay the money to send them to Scotland. Oh, look, I don't know. I've just come back from a lovely holiday in Scotland, so I won't say anything against that great nation. Let me make sure I've understood your objection fully, though, because it mentions uh, being on a rainbow. You're doing a kind of a, a Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds reading of this and detecting uh, an advocacy with drugs culture. Well, I just think that, you know, you d- whenever you're dealing with artistic types who are writing lyrics for songs um, or, or indeed creating art of any type designed for children, whenever there's something said that could be suggestive in, in any way, you generally find that they meant it that way and, and it's a, a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing. So, well, I don't know Tom Fletcher personally. He might be a very clean-cut guy, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a few giggles going on in the studio when he was singing those lines. Londonist out loud. On Thursday of last week, Tag Fine Arts and Londonist joined forces to host a talk as part of their The Art of Mapping exhibition. Speakers included Stephen Walter, the acclaimed artist famous for his detailed hand-drawn maps of London, John Kennedy, London taxi driver and chronicler of London's minutiae, and James Cheshire, digital mapper and lecturer in advanced spatial analysis at UCL, and of course our very own Matt Brown, editor of Londonist and instigator of the Museum of London's recent hand-drawn London mapping exhibition. Each of the speakers uses or creates maps in very different ways. Stephen maps his own personal experiences of the city to create dense, beautiful works of art. John relies upon a mental map of the city created through years of studying and employing the knowledge and driving around London. James, who's from, of course, an ap- academic setting, melds data with maps to create digital visualisations of London. I've got to tell you, some of them were breathtaking. In an event dedicated to the visual, it wasn't easy to find podcast-worthy material. Uh, I think we've done it here. The full version will go live on Londonist.com with maps, we hope, in the next few days. Just stick the art of mapping into the Londonist search box. But here for you now is an exclusive flavour of the sort of thing we heard at the talk. Um, but without further ado, it's kind of now for something completely different as we move on to uh, London cab driver John Kennedy, uh, who does, he doesn't have slides. He's just going to regale you with his stories. So. Good evening. I suppose uh, after, after that, I mean, uh, I, I feel like a bit of a Luddite because uh, what, what I do uh, is, I, you could argue, actually, I put all that information, a lot of it, and this information held within the A to Z, the wonderful A to Z. It's an amazing book, my Bible, uh, between my ears, in, a, in my head, like all my colleagues do, uh, to varying degrees. Uh, I, hold a, I hold a green badge, which means uh, I've done my detailed knowledge of a six-mile Vales of Charing Cross 14 years ago. Uh, I can remember, war, well, 14 years ago, driving a cab, so 16 years ago, I was 28. I can remember going up to Penton Street, Islington. Uh, it was then run by the Metropolitan Police, uh, I'd gone redundant from a job in the city with British Gas, took three months off, spent three months basically having a good drink, eating, being merry around London, not really knowing what I was doing, hailing cabs and then going home to my partner and then wake up one morning realising that it's time to, you know, put your backside into gear and get on with your knowledge. Purchased a moped, had applied to go, got invited to a chat. Now, the difference was then with the knowledge was it was Metropolitan Police run the service. So it was very much a white shirt, dotty tie, black shiny shoes, black socks, grey suit, yes sir, no ma'am. You only did what they said when you went for an appearance. If they said walk in the door, come in, you walked into the door. It didn't mean take a chair, sit down. Uh, For me it was just do what they say. Don't anticipate. Don't do what you'd normally do, like this evening. You'd walk in, take a seat. Uh, and then I went out on that moped. For me, the moped was the worst bit, really. I, I've always loved learning. I mean, but the idea of hitting Hyde Park Corner for the first time, 
uh, I just closed my eyes. And, and then you, you just heard the hollers, the shouts from the taxi cabs, from the bus drivers, from everybody else, like that National Lampoon film. And I remember all of a sudden appearing at Duke of Wellington Place near Park Lane. But, but what is the knowledge? Well, I've thought long and hard about it, really, how I'd explain it to you. And it's very simple. We're at Dover Street. And what happens when we get to Dover Street if you're in a taxi cab? It's only one thing. It's one-way street. I end up in Hay Hill. From Hay Hill, I can do a left and right turn at the Barclay Street. We're going to turn right this evening, which takes us into Barclay Square. Barclay Square has some of the oldest trees in London. Dates back to the 18th century. Have a look if you get the chance this evening. But there's many things you can do from Barclay Square. I can take a left into Fitzmaurice Place, or I can go dead ahead into Davies Street. If I go dead ahead into Davies Street, due to works cross rail which is semi-permanent i can only i'm forced right into brook street what's in brook street claridge's you can't miss it basically i mean the queen rather likes to dine there ramsey's got a restaurant too even though he's never ever never seems to cook there but from brook street i get a right turn i do into new bond street from new bond street i can if i want to chuck a left into conduit street from conduit street i'm able to do a number of things but i get to the end i can turn left or right into regent street from regent street i'm able to get to piccadilly circus again a rather a busy junction and it's been altered lately been shrunk we have a problem with town planners they have a habit of uh, wanting traffic to move but then they seem to widen pavements and then they wonder why we end up with congestion so we're at an immediate left turn to Shaftesbury Avenue or and go forward into what's now Coventry Street, rather narrowed, or I've got a right turn into the Haymarket. And as people often say that taxi cab drivers, we don't go south, I think it's only right that we do at least head to one of the bridges. So I'm heading down the Haymarket, I'm going to take a left turn into Pall Mall East and then we're going to get to a right turn into Trafalgar because it's not a square anymore, we do need to drop the square off the end. It's only got three sides because someone decided to pave it over. So we're going to turn right onto Trafalgar, left onto Trafalgar, and then we'll notice a little mini roundabout and a massive, humongous junction that most people still don't understand, even though poor Charles I is sitting there on his little horse uh, wondering what the blooming hell is going on with London. But I can chuck a left if I want up back onto St Martin's Place or I can go Northumberland Avenue or I can go down Whitehall. Let's take a trip down Whitehall, the home of governance, and then leads us to Parliament Street. And that, well, behind us is the beautiful amazing monument to the glorious dead that we've just seen on TV over the weekend. But we're at Parliament Street now and then Parliament Square. We're going to throw a left at the Bridge Street over Westminster Bridge. We get to Westminster Bridge Road and then what used to be the head of the Inner London Education Authority, that monstrosity of a pentagon that's been knocked down and now turned into this rather odd-looking hotel, the Westminster Bridge Park Plaza, but we've now got a horseshoe. How this map and how London constantly evolve and changes, I mean, is something you update yourself constantly when you're doing your knowledge of London. So where are we now? We're at the Westminster Bridge Park Plaza. We call it Addington Street Circus. So we've bared right at Addington Street Circus. We've gone long into Westminster Bridge Road. That's under the railway bridge, not into the station. And then I've gone forward on the Westminster Bridge Road. What options do I have? Well, many. I can turn left into Bayliss Road, I can do a right into Kennington Road, or I can continue forward into Westminster Bridge Road and then comply with St George's Circus, which we're going to do, and head down to the Elephant and Castle via London Road and that beautiful, wonderful building called the Strata where no wind vanes ever turn, even though they've got turbines upon it. Rather embarrassing, but we've still got that awful-looking shopping centre. I grew up in that area. I uh, remember that awful programme, Up the Elephant, Round the Castle, with Jim Davison, I'm sorry to say. And, my God, I can't wait to say, knock the rest of it down, to be honest with you. The Haygate Estates just down the road. But we're at the Elephant and Castle. We've gone south. And just think about that. A taxi cab drivers do go south. Many of us do. Especially when it's rate three after 10pm. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> and uh, honestly, that's made a massive difference. But we're at the Elephant and Castle. So let's go back round the roundabout and come back on ourselves. And we'll see the Methodist, the temple, the Roman columns standing there on our left-hand side. Because the knowledge is about visualisation. You ride routes on a moped and you put them and commit them to memory. It's not just about learning the streets and the roads. It's about picturing it. Because when you're on that appearance, he wants to know or she wants to know every single street and road. And they ask you points, which are places upon the routes. So it's about committing not just the roads 
and the streets and the squares and the crescents. It's about the places, the stage doors, the theatres, the bars, the pubs, the police stations, the fire stations, the ambulance stations, the police stations, because you do need those late at night. Honestly, you'd be, you'd be shocked how many times you do need them. And the more they shut down, the more we have to go hunting for them sometimes when you have on that odd occasion that awkward passenger. But I'm back at, anyway, Elephant and Castle. We're going to turn left at that second roundabout where it's got that rather odd-looking, I don't know if any of you know, it, it looks like the Cybermen HQ. It's actually uh, a transformer station, I understand. But we're going to go left into, which is St George's Road. And it gives us an option when we get to St George's Road. It's either forward Westminster Bridge Road or right turn Westminster Bridge Road. We will do. When we go right, we're back at St George's Circus, but we're going to go left on the Waterloo Road. And there's loads of points here. The London Ambulance, ambulance Headquarters, or the NHS Ambulance Headquarters on our left-hand side. We go forward onto Waterloo Road, and then I'm back at a left-turn Bayliss Road, or I've got a right turn onto the cut, which is banned. And that's the other thing. Although you know the knowledge, and although you know that streets and roads lead you certain places, traffic lights and banned turn offences make a massive difference. I've only got asked this evening on the way walking here, uh, direction somewhere. I give them directions that I would drive in a cab, <laughs> not how I would walk. I've actually sent them about 600 yards the wrong way. And it's a bad, bad habit you get in a taxi. You, you automat- and, and I've walked literally a taxi route here tonight, not through the park, although the sign said at St James's that the bridge was shut. So I had to walk around it. So you, you, you do, it's an odd thing what it does to you. It, it, it changes your memory, your mind. It's about growing. I'm sure some of you know, especially the chap from UCL, I'm in the University College Hospital London, about the hippocampus, how you can exercise the mind. And that's what taxi cab drivers have done. It's a part, front lobe of the mind that's exercised like any other muscle, and it grows. It grows whilst knowledge is being put into there, navigational skills, because that's all we're doing. This can be transposed into any city or any town, village throughout the globe, and, and for me, it, it's, it's sad that that's never happened. You know, all, the amount of people I meet and pick up throughout London that comment on the level of expertise of, of London taxi cab drivers. And we're of varying IQ levels. Some are very high, some are, are lower, and some are the majority of the bog standard in the middle. But what they are, they're good at their jobs, they're professionals, and they take a lot of pride in that job. Yet no other city in the world seems to want to adopt our system of testing and our system of expertise with regards to our taxi cab drivers. But where was I? Waterloo Road. <laughs> we come back to that big roundabout. It used to be called Tennyson Way. Most people know it now as the big, uh, it's the massive, humongous, looks like a gas holder. It's the actual uh, IMAX cinema. Yeah, thank you. I do need my memory jogging every now and again. And then we get onto Waterloo Bridge. Get onto Waterloo Bridge, you get to Lancaster Place, that last little bit as you get off the bridge. We can bear right into the Orwich, we'll take a left into Catherine Street, I'm going to take a left into Russell Street, then a right into Bow Street, and now I'm not dithering, but I'm looking, I'm going to go, they've altered the junction. It used to be a roundabout, it's not anymore, it's just to give way. So we go into Wendell Street and then take a left into Shelton, a left into Upper St Martin's Lane, a right into Cranbourne, and then when we're in Cranbourne Street, again I have an option, a left or right into Charing Cross Road. Let's go left. Charing Cross Road, left into St Martin's Place. We're back at that Trafalgar Square again and Charles I. And then really from there, we'll comply that roundabout, go into Coxburgh Street, forward into Pall Mall East, Pall Mall, which is now two-way. They've changed the road network after 40 years. They've tried to put it back to what it used to be. And I can tell you now it doesn't work after £30 million worth of public money being spent by Westminster Council. As we get to the end of Pall Mall, we bear right we do on to... St James's Street, and then we'll do a little left into Piccadilly and then a right into Dover Street. And hey, presto, we're back at the gallery here. Thank you. There we go, John Kennedy taking us around town. Special thanks to Hobby and Maggie at Tag Fine Arts. Check them out at www.tagfinearts.com and you can find John's Bollards blog at bollardsoflondon.blogspot.com Now, I'm going to draw you back to the uh, the security concerns. That was most elegantly sidestepped. (laughs) I mean, how, how comfortable would you be uh, knowing that there are 500 FBI agents and 500 diplomatic security agents, uh, no doubt 
wearing sidearms, an SAS unit, ground-to-air missiles. I personally find that rather scary. I think it is quite scary, and it certain it seems a little bit over the top, but um, the US aren't known for their reticence when it comes to security matters, are they? So They might just decide to carpet-bomb the place before they turn up anyway, just on the off chance. Oh, it's thoroughly over the top, isn't it? Obviously, it's Americans doing what, what uh, they like, um, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a sad state of affairs when one of the great showpieces in, in sport becomes um, tarnished, I'd say, and this need to protect from shadows and uh, spectres in the corners of our societies, apparently. Yeah, what do you think more, more generally of the concerns? There was a story this week that uh, one of the stations, I think... Uh, London Bridge. Is it London Bridge? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very ironic, isn't it, actually, that the Winston Churchill War Museum, which is right by London Bridge, is set to be demolished because it poses a terrorist threat to the station itself. Um, the idea being that terrorists, if they chose to, could park quite close to the station in a car bomb because of the, of the way it's set out at the moment, and of course this could cause extensive damage. The solution is to demolish a building that was built in 1894 and unfortunately isn't listed, uh, and that would make London you know, 0.5% safer. I, just, I, I really would like to know who it is who's in charge of this whole idea of protecting London because the reality is it's never going to be safe so why go about changing our way of life to to create this idea that somehow we're going to be uh, impenetrable by anyone who wants to do us harm Yeah, let's join the dots for a second if we've got ground-to-air missiles at the Olympic site then presumably a car bomb is not the only thing threatening London Bridge Station I just think to to demolish the museum is just an insanely over-the-top reaction Um, and we just seem to be returning to those um, rather unpleasant days of paranoia after um, 7-7 and 9-11 and you know, I don't. I don't think that we should be in a position where we're, you know, we we have to be scared of terrorists hiding around every corner because you know it just isn't the case. Um, who does this? Uh, well, is this terrorism threat? And I'm using that term fairly loosely, I suppose. A supposed threat. Is it just being used to by you know, developers or security companies or whoever it might be to get done what they want to get done? I think there's a certain element of that, yes. Um, I think there's been quite... I mean, certainly in the last few years, there's been quite a lot of cases of people's um, you know, civil liberties being... Or, you know, the government wanting to curb people's civil liberties in the name of security. Um, and it's playing on people's fear of what might happen um, in order to, you know, take away certain freedoms. Um, and, you know, in this case, um, to remove a museum on the basis... On the, spurious basis that it might be some kind of um, terrorist target it's yeah I just think it's really over the top and the irony is certainly there isn't it that of all the people it's the uh, it's Winston Churchill the fellow who protected us from invasion and danger who's being bulldozed yeah he'll fight them on the beaches but he never would have imagined it would have been on the banks of the Thames you know well the big news also that I uh, noticed was that Boris Johnson is uh, dropping his honey monster act and instead is seeking to emulate Christ uh, last Friday, he um, fed 5,000 people um, uh, to highlight food wastage. Uh, this was in uh, conjunction with some organisations, um, Free Share and Food Cycle, Fair Share, sorry, and Food Cycle, who have been running this sort of thing since the 1990s, highlighting the amount of food that goes to waste. And the idea was that people could come to Trafalgar Square and um, yeah, get free food. Did you go? Free food, I'm always there, but that was a bit of a hike for me. I had to balance up the uh, extortionate train fare. 15 quid to get there for a free sandwich. It's time to take a look at the cultural bits and pieces going on in London in the week ahead. Now forget the stuffy image of classical music, get up close to the City of London Symphonia and take a strings masterclass with them at the special Closer concert at Village Underground in Shoreditch on Tuesday the 22nd of November. Tickets are just £15 and include a glass of wine and the opportunity to mingle with the musicians after. If you were despairing of finding cool and sexy Christmas entertainment this year, fret not, La Soiree is back, returning to the Roundhouse and ready to amuse and amaze you with their contemporary variety show, featuring heady performances from the creme de la creme of the world's twisted cabaret entertainers. The show opens on 23rd of November and runs through till the 29th of January 2012. Tickets start from £15, going to £60 for the posh seats. To book, go to www.la-soiree.com. 
Lest we forget the summer of civil unrest, the Tricycle Theatre presents The Riots, a production based on spoken evidence, tweets from the time and interviews that builds a real-time picture of the riots as they unfolded. In the absence of a government inquiry, this is the Tricycle's attempt to analyse what happened and why. Tickets are £13. You can watch The Riots until 10th of December. To book, visit www.tricycle.co.uk. Look into the future of contemporary art with Bloomberg New Contemporaries exhibition at the ICA, showcasing the work of 40 resident UK art school graduates. Accompanying the exhibition are talks and weekly artist salons. The show opens on Wednesday the 23rd of November, runs through till January 2012. Admission is free. And you need ICA.org.uk for more information. You can skate at London's most glamorous ice rink at Somerset House from the 22nd of November, as well as normal skating sessions you can book for club nights on the ice, skate school and lunchtime workouts, or just stop off for a mulled wine at Tom's Skate Bar. There are penguin-shaped stabilisers for little skaters and free storytelling sessions by the Christmas tree to look forward to. Tickets from £7.50 and to book you can go to www.somersethouse.org.uk forward slash ice hyphen rink and finally who directs the moral and ethical standards in society for centuries in britain it's been led by the church but in a multi-faith and increasingly atheist population where does or who should this power reside are politicians the right people to decide what is good and bad behavior and what is the role of the media in directing our sense of what is acceptable uh, whose mind is it anyway is a series of events at the bishopsgate institute is run by neil denny of uh, little atoms the talk just mentioned is on the 6th of december at 7 30 price is eight pounds six pounds for concession to find out more go to the bishopsgate institute website and don't forget you can find out more about all of the events just mentioned and many more and all of the stories we've discussed, as always, on Londonist.com. Rory Anderson and Beth Parnell, how could you, what uh, do you fancy from that little lot? I like the idea of the whose mind is it anyway. I'd be quite intrigued to know uh, uh, the results of that discussion. Yeah, they've got some great speakers there. Richard Holloway, Owen Jones and Theodore Dalrymple are, are going to be there, as well as Riyad Zat Butt who's uh, a journalist, so some good writers and broadcasters there. Uh, Beth, what, what grabbed your fancy? Um, the ice skating, I'm afraid. I'm going to be really shallow and just say that I'd love to go ice skating. I've been to the ones at um, Canary, the, the rinks at Canary Wharf and Tower Hill. Um, not been to Somerset House yet, so I think that might be on my list this year. Are you going to be wearing penguin-shaped stabilisers? I think it unlikely. <laughs> I'm tempted to. <laughs> it's very fun. I've embarrassed myself at the Hampton Court one a couple of years in a row. Shocking at skating, but it's a good day out. Because it's obviously a beautiful location. Whereabouts is it in relation to the palace? It's just at the front of it. So it's opposite, uh, is at the edges of Bushy Park, uh, as you come up from uh, my end of the woods, Shepherd and uh, Kempton Park Racecourse. Sounds gorgeous. The ring just around the corner from where I work, actually, at uh, Broadgate Circle. Um, they've just, they've just uh, finished that in the last couple of weeks, I think. So, so th- this feels like a, sl- a fairly new thing. Like the t- last 10 years, I don't remember there being this many ice rinks going on. Yeah, I yeah, I kind of yeah, I think I agree actually. It seems to be something that's suddenly got very popular in the last few years. Maybe there's an answer to our transport situation here as well. I know in Canada there there are towns where the canals freeze over and all the people in the suburbs get to skate into work for a couple of months. I think that's the way forward. In the Olympic year, that the tie nicely with the keep fit message, wouldn't it? Well, listen, uh, thanks very much both for uh, being here. We have some events and dates and websites and blogs and things to publicise. Rory, you've, you've got an event coming up with London Historians, I know. Yes, London Historians have been very kind in inviting me along to uh, flap about out of my depth with other historian um, uh, dignitaries. On, uh, on the 29th of November in Spitalfields, it's a Tuesday, they've got a History in the Pub series where I'll be speaking with a, with a professor of history and another author. Um, but all the um, information there is found at the London Historian's website. I'll be there playing a couple of songs in support of my series, which continues um, through the five London Olympic boroughs on Londonist every second weekend. And I know we've had uh, quite a few inquiries now about the theme tune. <laughs> the, the theme tune at the end of the show. Uh, great, babe. Um, where can people find it? And do we need spellings so that they can uh, track you down by name? Uh, yes, my name's Rory Anderson, R-U-A-I-R-I-D-H, but Londonist, if you type in Folk Olympics into Londonist, it'll all come up. Great Babe is the latest addition to that series, and we'll move on to another borough forthwith. 
Beth, how about you? Where can people find out more about you and uh, Oxo Editorial? You can see my work on Londonist.com um, and I also have my own blog um, which is a sort of combination of Londonist things that I've written and um, other sort of various rantings and bits and pieces that I've done as well which is um, oxocubeeditorial.blogspot.com Beth Parnell Hawkinson, Rory Anderson, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Emily. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Beth Parnell Hopkinson and Rory Anderson, John Kennedy, James Cheshire, Stephen Walters, Tag Fine Arts, Matt Brown, Zoe Craig, Lindsay Clark and Bernadette Barcelon Paspi. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson and I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.